to another Rational Face podcast. I am Brian Dillman, and you are listening to the best podcast on the Blabbernacle. Today, we have another installment of the Ask a Mormon Sex Therapist series with myself, Laurel, and Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife. Today, the discussion centers on two topics rekindling the desire that seems to have been lost soon after marriage, and how to think about fantasy, sexual fantasy, in a monogamous sexual relationship. As usual, Jennifer tackles these two questions in a way that helps us understand and helps us think about our sexuality. So, let's jump right into it. everyone. We are back with Dr. Jennifer finlayson Fife for another round of questions. And I'm here with Brian. Hello. And Jennifer. Hello. So um, we will just jump in. And Brian's got the first question for us. I'm 26. I've been happily married for four and a half years now. My husband and I were sealed after marrying civilly, and now we have an 18-month-old daughter. Back in 2010, my fiancé and I had chastity issues, so about a month before our wedding, I cut off all physical contact out of fear of messing up. It was a good decision because it worked, but I think it worked too well. Ever since then, my sex drive has been zero. I hate sex. It's 100% mental, and I can't figure out how to get over it. I know it's okay. I know I should enjoy it. I've been praying and thinking and trying new things, and nothing works. It causes a huge strain on our marriage. One of us is always having to give in. I'm constantly dreading him asking for it, and he's constantly wanting it, but dreading asking me because he knows I hate it. Please, please help me. I don't want to live our entire lives this way. Okay, so um, first, maybe what I would respond to and that is that this is not unusual. I have a lot of people who, especially in the sort of uh, engagement phase, put their sexuality in park and then they can't get it out of gear (laughs) once they get married. It's just like somehow they shut something down. And I think there's two factors that make that happen quite frequently. One is that In general, we have high anxiety around sexuality in the church, and there's a lot of costs to losing control of your sexuality. And social costs, spiritual costs, um, a sense of your own identity can be challenged by being too sexual. So a lot of times people basically want to inhibit their eroticism, of course. But, uh, and then, it's just hard to make space as you know, many people have talked about the good girl syndrome. It's just hard to make space for developing that sexuality when it becomes legitimate because one is so accustomed to shutting it down. But I think that a second factor that often people can't understand and that is very typical is that sexual desire is very easy in a context of dating because novelty is high and uncertainty is high in when you first are getting to know someone. And those are two huge correlates of sexual desire. So the more uncertainty you can tolerate in a marriage, the higher the eroticism will be, which is not the same thing as insecurity or, you know, um, 
lack of safety in a marriage, but the amount of uncertainty people can tolerate. And uncertainty is high in a context of dating. And what usually people do is they want to pressure more security into the relationship because they don't want to always wonder if their partner's into them or, you know, there's uh, some predictability in the relationship. And so often when people get engaged, what happens is they start to feel more certain. They're not, so, so basically when you're desiring somebody in a dating relationship, the desiring makes you feel more whole. It's like the idea of merger with that person makes you feel more complete, makes you feel like your sense of self has actually expanded. And so desire feels good in that context. But when you start to get into a marriage or start, you know, when you get engaged and the security in the relationship becomes clearer, the meaning of desire shifts. And so much of desire is linked to the meaning that we attribute to it. And so now there's a meaning shift. Now this becomes, once you get married, about um, no longer about is he into me, it is much more about choosing to share oneself and one's sexuality with another person. It's no longer around the question of am I enough, especially if you're the lower desire person like this person seems to be. And so when it's not about am I enough, it can very quickly feel like this is just about managing somebody else's needs all the time and I feel like I'm obligated or that I'm disappearing in the context of their desire. And so not only is it not uh, exciting, it actually gets very, very burdened. Desire can get very burdened, uh, which it sounds like is happening for this person. Now, I would say that this person probably would needs to think about the lack of desire from two different frames. One is... If I were her therapist, I would be very interested in what's happening in the relationship because, again, the context and the dynamic of the relationship will deeply shape the experience of desire. So if she feels like her husband is needy or demanding or constantly pressuring her um, and she feels like she has to sort of prop him up through validation of his sexuality that and she sort of buys into that, that will kill sexual passion very quickly because it it, it gets so linked with should and so linked with him. Um, She may, there's a lot of different things that people can feel that undermine, you know, a lot of times people just feel too, um, how to say it, when the desiring and dating is about validation, you know, like if, if I, if he wants me, it makes me feel better about myself. But in a marriage, when you want more security, oftentimes people want to dumb their relationship down, their sexual relationship down. They don't want to take as many risks. They don't want to expose as much of themselves because paradoxically there's more at stake. And so, you know, oftentimes in affairs, people will expose parts of their eroticism that they would never dare bring to the mother of their children, so to speak, because they don't want to expose this part of themselves when the stakes are high in a marriage. And so a lot of times people don't want, they can't validate their own sexuality enough to dare to really express it and expose it. And so 
then they start doing a kind of sexual engagement that's about accommodating the other person's desires, not about really bringing their desires or expressing themselves in the relationship. And there's a lot of cultural pressures on women to be more in the accommodating stance and not to wholeheartedly both develop and explore and express their sexuality. And because it's not an expression of themselves, it very quickly becomes boring and obligatory. And so the other dynamic that people might be managing is how much do I feel like there's room to express who I am, to be who I am in this marriage? I mean, there's this person has clearly been trying some things. I would be interested in what kinds of things she's been trying. I do, I think that one's sexual desire is never static and there are many, many ways to develop one's comfort with sexuality, their fluency in the language of sexuality, um, to better understand what kinds of ideas and experiences are arousing for them. But I think the other piece to think about is do I actually want to do that in this relationship? Because many people don't want to do it. One is for the fear of being possessed by the other person. Like if I become higher in my desire, will I then have to manage this guy and his needs all the time? Uh, another reason is I'm not sure that I want that much exposure. I'm not sure that I can even tolerate discovering this part of myself. Um, I may not want to be that generous to him. You know, he... Um, you know, a lot of times in marriage you get to know about the other person's limitations sometimes more than you want, and it can be hard to actually want to really give to them and share your sexuality with them. I think a lot of Mormon women are also almost, I don't know what's the way, lulled into a kind of martyr role in, in their marriage and that sexuality can be an expression of that, that I'm sort of excuse me, I'm sort of managing you and your desires and I'm being the good one by managing them. And even though they may feel some anxiety about not being sexually sufficient, so to speak, it's still, there's still this sense that they're in a bit of a kind of a martyr or a victim role that actually gives them some safety from having to sort of develop and become more of a real equal player in their marriage. So, what this person may want to think about is, you know, what, what are ways to actually cultivate your desire? I think if one really wants to know, it's not that hard to do. And, and I would really recommend um, an online, I teach a class that you can find on my website. You can purchase it that's specifically designed for LDS women and how to cultivate um, desire and self-awareness and awareness of your own eroticism and your own capacity for arousal and orgasm. Um, it's not that hard to do if you want to do it enough. But what I find in marriage is sometimes the desire to develop as part of ourselves is low because the risks are high and because of what's often happening in the relationship, the desire is low. And I know that sounds paradoxical because this person is actually saying, please, please help me. And I believe she wants it, but there may also be parts of her that are afraid to develop it and to express it and to expose to him what she really wants. But in short, if she's going to want it, it has to somehow become a deeper expression of her. And in order for that to happen, she has to figure out what it is that she really wants, both in her sexuality 
and in her sexual relationship and to dare to advocate for that and to stand up for that in in her marriage. I actually have a question or um, sure. clarifying. Um, so you mentioned the the risks and the stakes are higher in marriage. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just curious as to clarify that because I think my initial reaction, mm-hmm. you know, being an LDS married person is, well, what do you mean? We're married. We're, sure. you know, we're totally together. What, how is this more risky than, right. than dating? Exactly. So it does seem paradoxical because you'd think that now that you've like gotten sealed in the temple, that the, the risks are low, <laughs> but when you start to create a life with someone, they become a very, they become an increasingly important self-reference, meaning their validation grows in importance for managing your sense of self. And so it becomes harder to risk their invalidation, especially if your ability to hold your sense of self in the face of their invalidation, if that is limited you will take fewer risks, not more hmm. risks, with your marriage partner. Hmm. And so in order for novelty to remain high in a marriage, you have to be willing to let it grow. And to, and to let it grow, you have to be able to risk invalidation. You have to keep pressuring the relationship to accommodate more authenticity, um, which requires the ability to tolerate the invalidation of your spouse. So, you know, this is why people have such boring conversations in restaurants when they're at their, you know, 20 years of marriage is because they know how to edit out all the things that the other person can't validate in the conversation, Mm. especially if they're going to have a pleasant dinner. (laughs) And so the the conversation is boring because, because they sort of know what the marriage can tolerate and what it can't. But marriages that stay really vibrant and passionate have tolerated the discomfort of pressuring the marriage to accommodate more of of who each person is, including sexually. It's kind of like you've learned the unspoken rules of yes. the group or the relationship. Precisely. And you don't you don't dare break them. That's right. <clears throat> One other thing. So, so it seemed pretty clear at one point you said one thing that helps is getting comfortable with language of like with sex language. Mm-hmm. And so Esther Perel's book mating in captivity might be a good thing to read because mm-hmm. it stretches, um, stretches you from your normal conversation to things that you had never thought about probably mm-hmm. as a, as a, as a, as a young Mormon person. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you can read books like that. You can go to your, your, your course, I imagine would have more than just mm-hmm. sex language, but what's the next step to, I sure, don't know, sure. like how, how do you, how do you get someone to do the next step where they're, they're willing to push the boundaries and they're willing to be vulnerable and uh, make the relationship accommodate. Well, so, so let me just say one thing to clarify is what I was saying is sexuality is a language. It is a language of self-expression. It's a way of communicating in oneself to another human being and vice versa and receiving. And, you know, what I would say a lot of times when sex gets shut down is because people don't like the message that's being communicated through their sexuality, either of selfishness or anxiety. or um, So I'm saying sexuality is a language that you can cultivate and develop. And like, it's not a static reality. Now, in terms of what you're saying, Brian, like, how do you actually do this? I mean, 
women in particular have been told since they were very, very young that their sexuality is dangerous and mm-hmm. that if they're good women, they should manage it, shut it down. And we have come to believe this idea that women's sexuality is inferior to men's, that men are the sexual ones, they've got all that testosterone, and women are the sexually limited ones. And it's just simply not true. It's really a product of our culture and the way that we have really literally created ourselves and what we express around our sexuality. Women have a kind of eroticism and earthiness and sexual capacity that we don't talk about and that maybe many men are even afraid of and many women are afraid of. The real deal is whether or not I dare to let my sexuality speak and let myself start to come to know it. So one exercise I give women is to just um, put their pen to paper and to ask the question, what does my sexuality want? Not what do I want, what, not what do I, good Mormon girl, want, <laughs> but what does my sexuality crave, yearn for, desire? And to just write, set a timer for maybe eight minutes and don't take your pen off the paper and just write and let whatever comes out, come out. And even if you think it's so horrifying or frightening that you need to shred it, that's okay. (laughs) But at least your sexuality has had a chance to express itself. There are so many inhibitors on it that it it becomes like you're trying to figure it out when, when there's no when you're not even sure that there's a legitimate answer other than I just want to look deeply into my husband's eyes um, and think only of him. If that's the only right answer, you have a hard time figuring out what you want and what you're trying to express or know about yourself. And the challenging thing about eroticism is it's, it's, um, it's not clean and tidy. It's not neat and tidy like we sometimes want life to be. And so... It's not so much about how do we find it. It's always it's about how do we tolerate finding it? How do we make room to let it speak to us more? That's the bigger question. And so I would try that exercise if you really want to know. So one thing, um, what if they're shut down to the point where they do that exercise and nothing really comes out? Um, like only fear or, you know, like honestly nothing comes out. But maybe yeah. the only thing you say is my sexuality wants to know what my sexuality wants. Maybe that's what it wants. Maybe I really still don't know. Um, I I would suggest that you keep trying. You keep – I mean, I do think reading books, I think reading sexual stories, I think watching and just starting to notice – because it's there, it's just that it's been pressed down for so long. And I mm. really haven't met somebody who doesn't have eroticism. I mean, I haven't had, I've had lots of clients come in who tell me at first they don't have that. But that's not in fact true. They just haven't let themselves find it. And so it's really about what are you willing to look for. Okay, so that's a good starting point and something you might have to keep working yes, on you definitely, several times. Absolutely, yes. This is not like you're going to just do that exercise and all of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh, I had you know, it's more around what am I willing to see in myself and, and notice in myself. It, just another way of saying it, like many women think of themselves as not being strong or capable or equal and it's it's because they've constructed themselves in a way that that 
that that is the data that they keep confirming to themselves. They don't see their own strength and and capacity and competence, and it's all there, but they have to be willing to start seeing it and cultivating it. And um, it's just about in life what you're going to give attention to. And we've been given so many messages not to give attention to it that it starts to look like it's not there. I have a question kind of following up on that. Um, So if someone does this exercise, and like you said, like a lot of the reason we can forget what we have is because we've constructed an idea around ourselves of who we are or who we aren't. Um, So, you know, say you do this exercise, you discover a few things, but then, of course, you're going to have all those voices coming back being like, no, no, don't, don't go into that. You know, mm-hmm. um, I guess, I guess the question I'm asking are what are some of the stories or ideas that you can play back um, to kind of counteract that, you know, once you've kind of made this discovery um, I know when you're, when you have something really vulnerable happen, there's auto- almost this like automatic shutdown sometimes because mm-hmm. it's terrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, so what's, what is some way that you can help hold on to that a little bit as you try and ease, you know, ease your thinking into a new way of looking at things? I think, I think what I would be saying to myself is that first of all, sexuality is not neat and tidy and it is a little more eroticism is the, the reason we have trouble with things like masturbation and, and sexual pure thoughts and all that kind of thing is because eroticism makes all of us anxious, not just Mormons. Because it isn't neat and tidy. And so it's not that we're going to always have exactly the kinds of ideas that we would think were acceptable in the reality of life. But the question is whether or not I can tolerate knowing them and letting them be and then making decisions about what I think are pro-social and loving ways to use my sexuality. Ways that will bless my life and the life of my spouse. And so it's about just giving a little space between knowing is not the same thing as acting. Experiencing or witnessing a desire is not the same thing as saying, I'm going to do that or, you know, I'm going to even cultivate that idea. I'm just allowing myself to experience. I mean, I sometimes find my own eroticism comical, you know, (laughs) you know, just like sometimes the ideas or things that, but not scary so much because you always uh-huh. can make your choices. You can always figure out what you're going to do with it or um, how you let it, how, how, what kind of self-awareness and self-understanding you can glean from it. Um, you know, the things that turn you on tell you a lot about your own history and your own relational experiences and how sexuality got sort of internalized by you. And then I think you can make decisions around how you might channel some of that energy and those ideas in ways that are congruent with your Christian ideals. So um, of loving and serving and and blessing your life and the life of your spouse. So I think I would just say there's space between what I see and then what I choose. And the, the next question we're going to do, I'll talk a little, it's the same idea and I'll talk a little bit more about that there. Okay, our next question I am an LDS woman and have been married for over a year now, and I've been struggling with something that I don't feel comfortable talking to anyone really about. 
I just listened to a recent podcast you did on fantasies during sex, and that helped me a little bit, but I still have some questions I would like to ask you. When we first started having sex, I found that I could get interested in it more, but now my mind wanders into fantasies that help me get aroused and have me and give me an enjoyable time during sex, but I can't help but feeling guilty sometimes after sex because sometimes I will think of my husband as someone from a TV show or movie that I've seen. It is really hard because it arouses me more and sometimes I try to fight it. I have found myself now trying to avoid sex because I don't want to deal with the guilt that comes from thinking about someone else besides my husband. I don't think about them outside of sex. It's just during and it's frustrating. Do you have any advice for me? Okay, great. So first of all, this is not strange at all, for starters. I mean, uh, the human mind is wired for novelty, sexual novelty, and uh, even even rams are more able to fertilize a you when it's a different you each time, right? So they're <laughs> so if they're copulating with the same you over and over again, it actually takes longer for the ram to to orgasm. Uh, but if it's a different you than every single time. And so it's it's this, we're a sexually gregarious species and it's one of the reasons that pornography is so compelling is that the novelty is constant. And so I think if this is one of the challenges of marriage is that we want all the security that comes with a monogamy, but it can also really quickly deaden the excitement. And like I was talking about in the first question, I think because couples tend to systematically reduce the amount of novelty in their in their sexual relationship, it can quickly become pretty boring, right? So it becomes lowest common denominator sex. So I think um, I think to the question of fantasies and thinking about your spouse alone, I mean, I guess I would say that I assume, that my husband does not always think about me and me alone. And that is not to say I, I know that I'm loved and I'm valued and cared for by him. And, you know, I that's clear to me. I feel that clearly. I feel like he loves being with me in this way. But I would not ever assume that I should either presume or demand that his thoughts would only be of me at all times. Because... I guess what I would say is I feel like his sexuality pre-existed me and does not exist for me. I think it is his sexuality he offers to me. It blesses my life, but that's different than it's only there to validate me. And so I would say to this person, I think in the church we, we take comfort in the idea we want to believe the idea that our sexuality is awoken by the other person on our wedding night. And of course, everyone knows that's not true, but that's the idea that we like because then it feels like it's, it's Christian then because you know then your sexuality is there to bless another person and theirs is there to bless you. And until you get into that context, it's all on hold. And if you're just using it to bless another person's life, then all will be well. But the reality is is that we are sexual creatures from birth and that while the fullest expression of sexuality, I believe, is best in the context of a committed relationship, that we are sexual beings 
the entire time leading up to that and are developing our eroticism and developing our sexual thinking and our sexual interests that if you're going to have an intimate relationship, you then share what you have cultivated inside of yourself in this this human capacity. And so good sexuality is about blessing the life of your spouse with your sexuality and your sexual generosity, but also about blessing your own life. And I think that um, sometimes one of the reasons that many women, I think, have difficulty having or an orgasm is because that in order to orgasm, you have to be comfortable being self-centered enough in a context of a sexual relationship to move inside of oneself, to move into one's own thoughts and sensations while being in the presence of the other without fearing that you're doing something wrong or selfish. And when one is able to do that, it's not selfishness at the expense of the other person. It's actually trusting in the security of the relationship enough to have the freedom to move into one's own sexuality in the presence of the other, to basically to seduce one's own orgasm in the presence of the other. Because we really like the idea that your husband awakens your sexuality or gives you the orgasm. And while clearly he is a participant in that and could help in that, um, that really one has to bring the thoughts to bear and the, you know, the sort of framing of the sexual experience that one has to seduce their own orgasm in the context of being with their spouse. That's the reality. And so, I mean, I'm not here to say it really doesn't matter what you think about, just get through the act of sex. I, I, I think, you know, I wouldn't like it if my spouse were thinking about a particular person other than me all the time <laughs> or, or was trying to block me out. I mean, I, don't, I think that would be more problematic and would speak to some problem in the relationship. But I think understanding that there is both fluidity in thoughts that allow one to become aroused and also is there enough safety to even share and understand the erotic mind of our partner without insisting that it validate us all the time. I'm not here to say that it shouldn't include us in some way or that we can't really be a part of understanding and knowing one another's sexual minds, but it doesn't always have to just validate us. So um, I think it's a tremendous blessing to be able to offer that kind of comfort in a marriage that you can belong to you without it being a threat to me and, um, and vice versa. So the first question that comes to mind is <clears throat> you've kind of given a green light on allowing your mind to wander in the specific area to seduce your orgasm, as you say. Mm -hmm. And the first concern I imagine coming up is, well, this is a slippery slope. Who knows what you're going to think about next or what, mm -hmm. what's going to happen next? So how do you manage that? Uh, is the slippery slope, is, that, is there any reality to that? Is that just a, a fa fallacy as it's defined or Well, I, or I think it's a bit of a fallacy. And the reason why I say that is because, you know, I'm not, personally going to do anything in my mind that I think is a real threat to my my loyalty to my spouse or to our relationship because 
I'm just not willing to do that. So, I mean, while I could possibly think of ideas where I could do that, I'm not willing to do that. So, again, it's this issue there. I think we're so afraid that our sexuality controls us rather than we get to assert choices in the midst of uh, possibilities and ideas that come into our own mind. So, I, you know, I want my sexuality to line up basically with my commitment to care deeply for another person um, and to be able to make space for my own self and understanding my own sexual self in that context. So both matter, but I'm not going to compromise him in that process. And I guess I just believe in people's ability to keep asserting choices. Now, I would say there's a lot of people who can use their sexuality in very cruel ways. And and sometimes they know this about themselves, and so they try to sort of shackle it and contain it, and then they're afraid if they just sort of let up a little that their hostility or their the, the part of them that feels incapable of really loving another person will manifest itself. Um, I, I guess what the issue is is developing one's capacity to really love and confront one's selfishness and limitations it's not so much about sexuality or sexual curiosity or novelty being the problem. It's really, again, what you choose with to do with it and how you use it. So I know a lot of people that in, you know, as I've said before, missionary position sex can be really, really unkind. Like, okay, I'll open my legs, but I won't open my heart up to you. I will withhold from you while I'm giving to you. That's a really unloving, unkind thing to do that people do all the time in marriage. And you see, it's not so much about eroticism. It's about how we use our eroticism and continuing to make sure it's blessing our life and the life of the person we're committed to. So... Trust in yourself, trusting the commitment that you've already made to this person and to the relationship is is something that you shouldn't you keep reasserting it. You know, you keep it, yeah. you you're always reasserting it and making choices as we are at every juncture in our lives. You know, it's not like when you get married your capacity to find other people attractive goes away, but you keep mm-hmm. in a good marriage, you keep asserting a choice around what you're going to do with your sexuality and your sexual interests. And it's the same in your thoughts and your uh, sexual exploration. So I, there's just one thing I noticed from uh, this question is that it seems like, and I've, I think this seems to be an LDS thing as well as something I've noticed uh, sometimes in myself, is that it's almost like there's this view that there's a right way to have sex. Mm-hmm. Like there's kind of one correct way we're supposed to have sex and it's supposed mm-hmm. to you know, we're supposed to start this way and think this thing and have this experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just curious if that's if that's pretty common among LDS people that we have this. Because I just know I, when I I told someone at you know their their uh, wedding shower or whatever, I one of my pieces of advice was that you know sex is awkward and funny and weird and enjoyable and so many things mm-hmm. um, instead of just one way. Right. Yeah, I I think that in the absence of really teaching an ethic around sexual uh, relationships, which I think we have failed to do 
so far in the church, um, I think that then people are left to imagine that there is a right way to do this that's a very cleaned up version and not about really how to embrace our sexuality and handle the grown-up nature of it, meaning mm-hmm. the ways in which it pushes us to really consider the morality of our choices in the sexual realm. So I think all of our focus, of course, as we know in the church, is around how not to have sex. Mm-hmm. But then we really haven't framed for married people around, I mean, or for the church as a whole, I think, how to think about what God-given sexuality is and how you use it in ways that promote goodness. And so I think that that promotes a kind of simplicity, a simple-mindedness around it, and anything that seems to deviate from that must be somehow wrong or must be hidden. Yeah, well, it makes me wonder, since the only images we have of sex, since we don't really talk about it in the church besides not having it, um, and then some very vague euphemisms about our future sex life, um, I, I don't know, it's just something I've noticed is that then we have all these very, you know, what we would call worldly portrayals of sex. Um, mm-hmm. And I just wonder if that's part of what makes people uncomfortable then when they start having thoughts that might absolutely. relate to that. And it's like, oh, no, that's the bad way to have sex. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, because we have no other model. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. So we have kind of, we have a sort of cultural immaturity and so we have sort of imma- we have sort of immature notions of sexuality, hmm. and we just need to grow out of it because we our theology is so pro-sex, and mm-hmm. so we just have to do a better job of it, of teaching it and knowing how to be whole people. We're so obedience-focused, and we're so anxiety-driven sometimes, and I just think it's too limited of a frame, and we. We need to be think of ourselves more as moral agents that are developing our ability to discern and choose, which I think is the purpose of this earth life, and it's inclusive of our sexuality. Well, thank you again, Jennifer, for coming on and fielding these questions that a lot of people have and don't have anyone to talk to. And like this individual said, she wanted to talk to someone and felt like she can't. And we've got this podcast, and that's sort of a pseudo-conversation that uh, she can listen to. But if you go to Jennifer's website, and we've got links on the on the blog post, you can set up consults, and you can talk with her. It doesn't have to be – it can be a recurring thing, or it can be a one-time thing, or, or uh, whatever you need. Right. As questions come to your mind in this area um, – look at the blog post we have the email address there and you can put comments in the in the most recent blog post is probably the best uh, to make sure that we actually see it Um, but through the email or or anonymous comments on the blog posts are ways to get your questions submitted so laurel jennifer thank you again it's been a good conversation thank you thank you Well, folks, I hope that was enjoyable, informative, and entertaining. I always enjoy having Jennifer on to uh, talk about a subject that's, frankly, difficult to talk about. What you can look forward to next week 
is the second episode in the series The Very Human Mormon Mind that Brian Kissel is putting together. And the topic we'll be tackling is the ever so popular confirmation bias. So please look forward to that one. And until next time, keep keeping it weird. Thank you.